Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Today's episode will be airing the day before Thanksgiving, and we do want to wish all our listeners a very happy one if you partake in that holiday. Obviously, we have a lot to be thankful for here on Punching Out, uh, from the people who help make this show possible to just the fact that we do have listeners in the first place. It really does mean a lot to us. Thank you for listening on today. Listeners, we're for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, listeners, both of you. Today, we're going to be talking about the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, which is um, a subject we've covered in the past on Punching Out, but this year's Black Friday promises to be something different. It promises to be um, more troublesome than usual, even. We've discussed in previous shows how this is just a hellish time of year for people involved in retail work, and this year, customers get to enjoy just a tiny piece of that hell too. Because as any number of breathless headlines will inform you, there are supply chain issues, capital S, capital C, capital I, that uh, could prevent you from getting the Christmas widgets that you're so desperately craving. Just one example of this sort of uh, story. This is in Business Insider. A toy maker says it's struggling to get its popular six $15 squishy dumplings on shelves before Christmas because of the supply chain crisis and labor shortage. That's not the dumplings. The $15 the squishy, squishy dumplings. Dumpling. Yeah. Supply chain issues, the transportation, the international shipping version of IBS. This is just one particular example of what has become a whole genre of article of late photos of sections of grocery store shelves that are suspiciously sparse and the like cases not in the united states yes all of which is part of a narrative that has formed that something is wrong with uh, the supply chain and maybe the first place to start with this episode is uh what is the supply chain because i mean i know obviously i I know everything there is to know about the supply chain but (laughs) you're testing maybe one of you two just uh yeah just as a test could could explain better than i could yeah of course uh the supply chain is the connection of materials from their manufacturing to their end state on a store shelf so that involves a lot of international shipping. If you've ever seen the graphic of the pears that are grown in Ecuador, but canned and tinned in Thailand, but then shipped across and sold and boxed in California, this that's the supply chain is from making the product all the way to selling it. And it's been disrupted ever since COVID started. You know, when you remember all the toilet paper running out, in March of 2020, that was a supply chain issue to some degree. Um, And all of the issues after it, they've all been supply chain issues. So the supply chain issue, which I really 
there needs to be a max limit on the number of times you can say that in this episode. Mm. We're approaching it quickly, whatever that number is. They've been around, but I think the fact that this is coming up against our most normal, quote unquote, Thanksgiving in a while, I think it's it's more concerning to consumers than it had been last year. Yeah, because this is supposed to be the time when we can come together and enjoy, as we said on this show, the most sacred act of all Americans, which is consuming. And with with Black Friday, and you know, normally Black Friday holiday sales, this is supposed to be a time when you're you're supposed to be able to get deals on things, and some things are cheaper than they would otherwise be because retailers mark them down to something less resembling the ridiculous profit that they make on a lot of this stuff so that they can get people in the door basically and meet quotas and whatever. And this year, if that, to the degree that that's happening, that's happening with inflated prices because things just apparently aren't getting here. And there's a myriad of reasons for that because Obviously, anything like international shipping, it, it's weird because on the one hand, international shipping is a massively complicated logistics business. I mean, you've got hundreds of ships, if not thousands, going all over the world every day, delivering stuff and so on. And then on the other hand, it's quite simple. The boat can't go in the dock and drop its stuff off. So you you kind of you get this this weird duality of the thing where in the same article, you'll hear about the immense challenges facing it. And then also somebody coming up with a solution that like a third grader would have suggested five weeks ago. And uh, our solutions today will be those of fourth graders. That's where they start trying to trick you. (laughs) Yeah, there's been a lot made of why this is happening. And even after reading a bunch of articles, it's not clear, especially to me, other than the fact that like a lot of people got sick in the last year, a lot of people. Uh, had their work routines disrupted by COVID in one way or another. Obviously, uh, some people were not going into the office, but many people involved in um, manufacturing and food production especially still did have to go to work. But nevertheless, less production means a number of things that snowball into a problem that now means Christmas is ruined, Christmas is canceled, it's over, you can't get the squishy dumplings. Really, what is Christmas without the squishy dumplings? Right. Maybe the sort of sticking point at the moment, at least from what I can see in the articles we've read in preparation for this episode, is there's sort of a backlog at various ports, not just in the U.S., but in basically every country now. That is the product of ports not having enough workers to deal with increased demand that was pent up during the pandemic and now feels comfortable spending freely again. So there just aren't enough workers doing the work to, you know, move things off ships and into onto trucks. But then there's also more specific issues of uh, workers not being allowed off the ships and onto the docks due to various vaccine requirements and a, a tangled web of rules there and difficulties getting these workers the right vaccines. Uh, because certain countries are only allowing vaccines that were manufactured within their borders to count for your eligibility to enter the country. And a number of things are causing this snarl at the ports that um, has ripple effects throughout the economy because 
everything comes through ports now. It's not just consumer goods that this is happening with. It's it's food. It's it's uh, parts for um, essential equipment, cars, that kind of thing. It's not just the squishy dumplings. Like it, it really is every single aspect of your life could be impacted by a supply chain issue. And yes, part of the problem is the fact that uh, our infrastructure is well behind what it should be. You know, I would argue that at any point, this kind of snarl up could have happened because this is how we've structured our economy. Like I saw one article about, or I saw something on Twitter, I think about how trucks from coming from ports were getting snarled up because the traffic was bad. And, and that's bad for the truckers. That's bad for the part, the people unloading boats. Like there's, there's a lot of issues and it's not just the backup at the ports. And, and to be clear, beyond the the more pandemic specific issues of workers being stuck on on ships and so on and that one extremely funny time that the Suez Canal was uh blocked by <laughs> the Ever Given that was a good few weeks man <sighs> that was the best but anyway other than that the other issue is if you want to get stuff out of those ports the people who are doing that are I figured, you know, in the back of my head, I know that trucking is a terrible job because we live in a country where Neil Gorsuch, friend of the show, serves on the Supreme Court, and we know his feelings on truckers. But we also know that it, we've we've seen articles and, and pieces and whatnot talking about the fact that increasingly trucking is a less stable job with terrible, increasingly terrible benefits. You're asked to go farther and farther on no sleep. You know, your company can fire you for refusing to die of of hypothermia in your cabin and all that. But what I didn't realize is that even within trucking, if you are port trucking, if you're one of the people that takes these goods and moves them off the port, apparently you are in the ninth circle of trucking hell. Because in a lot of these ports, these people are not paid not even an hourly wage. They are paid like day laborers. They show up, they get assigned a vehicle, and they take stuff. And that's what it is. So it's not even like you're coming out as part of a company and grabbing this stuff. It's you show up, you make the line, and it's like on the waterfront. You hope to get picked that day. On top of that, you've also got the fact, and this is kind of the elephant in the room whenever we talk about supply chain issues, is that Everybody along the line, from the company that makes the squishy dumplings to the companies that move the squishy dumplings to the company that sells you the squishy dumpling, everywhere along the line, all of these companies, during the pandemic, they said, okay, we have to cut costs, even though we're taking on paycheck protection loans uh, out the wazoo, we still have to lay people off, we still have to fire people, we have to cut labor costs, because God knows we're not cutting anything else. So we're going to cut labor costs, that's what we're going to do. And then... Things changed and the, you know, the CARES Act funding second round ran out and all that, which was a giant bailout. And then suddenly those companies went, you know what? We really don't need to hire those people back, actually. It's perfectly fine if we don't. And as it turns out, when you don't do that, it's very, very difficult to meet a sudden huge wave of consumer demand. And everyone, including the shipping companies that knew better than anyone. They, they've been doing this forever. International shipping has not changed that much. Like it's a business that knows how dependent it is on a massive amount of human labor. And even they refused to staff up in time for this. And they're now getting caught with their pants down. 
So it it's been a real it's been one of those months where you just kind of wonder if CEOs are paid to be incompetent. They are, but you know, I'm I'm just kind of trying to introduce that idea for our listeners now that we have multiple ones. Trucking is sort of an interesting job to be at the center of this because the narrative about trucking for the last decade has been that this job is three to four years away from being automated out of existence. You know, we're going to have robot truckers up and down the highways for the foreseeable future, you know, just as soon as X, Y, or Z problem gets hashed out. And, you know, three or four years later, five years later, this hasn't happened. We still need truckers and we need more of them. And maybe some people were dissuaded away from the trucking industry because of the narrative of impending doom around automation that led them to believe that the job wouldn't exist come 2021. But also, it's more or less just the case that the growth of automation was severely overestimated in that regard. You know what an automated truck is called? No, I don't. A death trap. It's called a train. We should just have trains, folks. But what am I talking about? Well, well, okay, but you say that. But trains have also had their own problems as part of international shipping, especially yes. in this country, because they've cut staff on, on freight trains. Yeah. They've reduced yeah. the number of people. Like the, There's a Denzel Washington movie about this, and you know <laughs> once Denzel is in a movie about the thing that you did, it's a major issue. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, t- the trains are not going to solve everything. I just felt on behalf of the train people, I should interject. Who are the train people? We're among you. They know who they are. <laughs> it's sort of tangential to the broader point of this episode, but the point I'm getting at is that um, these uh, optimistic, rosy views of automation and how everybody, to some people, they were optimistic and rosy, and to other people, they were very pessimistic. They were predictions of doom and gloom that everybody would be out of a job come 2021 whether that's good or not is uh up to you it's exactly what you said but i want to sort of make the causal link clearer it's been months now but i do remember somebody specifically teasing out the link between these narratives of automation and how directly doing that was linked to reducing benefits and cutting people and hours for truckers So they were using that. It wasn't just that people were dissuaded from it. It was that companies were using it as a way to dissuade people from the industry, to ride the truckers that they had harder, and to prevent them from doing anything in their own favor, which I mean, the trucking sector in the US, that's historically been when it was a much more unionized sector was the domain of the Teamsters, one of America's toughest unions. And you know, like the people who bring like armored vans to strikes and things like that, like, you know, cool guys. And the thing about that is I think the industry understands that they need to get out from under that. A lot of this ultimately is, I mean, we're talking about docks and ports. And if I remember correctly, the dock workers union in the US had a massive port strike last year as well. So, and and this is a sector that can actually, as we are seeing right now, paralyze the international economy in a way that might actually cause some pitchforks and some other complicated instruments to start coming out and being used on people. 
So they have to be prevented from doing any of that. And the best way to do it is to charge them with the moral impetus to getting us all our squishy dumplings on time. Not necessarily at a fair price, but on time. (laughs) You're right to point out that dock worker strike. I think it was in Oakland. Oakland, um, the dock there has been historically one of the more radical ones, uh, one that's uh, been unionized under the LWU for many decades now and um, sort of been a, a focus on the West Coast for labor activism in that regard. There was a um, USA Today series a couple of years back called Rigged, which focused on issues that were being faced by truck drivers at the time. This was 2018, 2017, thereabouts. And specifically, it went into how a lot of these truckers are taking on huge sums of debt in order to just have the job uh, because they are being made to uh, finance their truck before they can start working. So they're just shoveling themselves out of debt through years of work, famously long hours that um, various entities have tried to shorten over the years uh, because of the risks posed by people driving long hours in a row. At any rate, this is an industry that um, if there is indeed a labor shortage, it's not hard to figure out why that might be. This is an industry that has gone out of its way to, uh, I think, Noah, the term you used was dissuade people from wanting to be a part of it. You used that term, but yes, thank you. One of us did. Share the credit. This is what true socialism looks like. I mean, trucking, I I was flipping about the train thing, but yeah, the the labor shortage is contributing in no small part to the supply chain issues. I kind of understand why shipping companies didn't want to hire people despite the fact that they knew the holidays were coming and uh, despite the fact that they knew that eventually demand would increase. Because frankly, everybody thought in March 2020 that we'd be over this by now. And we haven't, and we still haven't hit the job numbers that we had in March 2020. Uh, We still really haven't had the same increase in, in wages that we need to do that. And there's no end in sight. Like it, it feels like we're always going to be in this, and we very well might be. So I understand why they didn't want to hire and didn't want to put the risks to it. But I feel like at one level, they're blaming us for them gambling and, and making the choice to not do that. That is 100% what they're doing, because that's what they always do. One, one of the things that the last year and a half has really laid bare is not just how much corporations and big firms and everything of that nature, really like the U.S. government most of the time, is perfectly willing to blame normal people for like not saving them from themselves. Like, it's your fault that you didn't force us to staff back up so we could avoid these. It's your fault that you're spending money for the first time in forever and we can't service that demand. It's your fault for having, you know, like bills to pay and healthcare to afford and student loan debt and whatever. You shouldn't have any of that. How dare you? And the thing that this pandemic has really laid bare is how many people are hogs who are willing to accept all of that abuse, which is why I think these people think that this works. Because if you're 
the CEO of one of these shipping firms, or if you're somebody who is one of these retailers who is like massively increasing prices or whatever, you should be scared for your life right now. You should be wondering how much longer you personally are going to be able to continue having the standard of living that you have, which in the US is the same as your life. You should be wondering how much longer before things get for you real bad. The fact that they're not tells us that they know, or at least they expect to continue to be completely inured from the consequences of their behavior. And in fact, to treat it like it's consequences of our behavior. It almost makes you wonder whether they sincerely believe that or whether that's just kind of a useful fiction that they've deployed so that, you know, they and their highly paid executive friends can all, I don't know. I mean, they sleep at night fine, no matter what. They have medications for that stuff now. Useful fictions is a, is a good term here because the supply chain issues being what they are being so big and large and sort of hard to wrap one's head around, you know, unless you're experts like us, uh, you know, geniuses, you might say, you can sort of project whatever solution you want onto them and claim that it is the one that's going to solve all the problems. You can say that, you know, this supply chain issue is all the result of uh, Joe Biden's meddling and the big government agenda of the Democratic Party, most of which hasn't been implemented in any real way at this time, to the extent that it is, in fact, a big government agenda in the first place. You can say that this is uh, because workers are just too soft nowadays and uh, got too used to living on the government dime when they had expanded unemployment benefits, which have now been out of the picture for several months now, depending on where in this country you live. And some people will believe you when you claim that because, you know, who are they to know? Supply chain. It's big. It's, you know, it's hard to wrap one's head around. Very recently, I think it was Bloomberg that put this out, but it may have been Business Insider, tried to make the case that Americans should simply get used to less consumption, much like Europeans. And they were making this case because of supply chain issues and so on. And they were saying, you know, maybe you should try doing that. And I'm all for less consumption. I want to be real clear. Like, I'm not endorsing consumerism as a thing, as I hope I've been more than clear via jokes about the most sacred act in American culture being consuming. The thing about it is, though, that none of those things, there's a reason that pent-up demand is taking this form. And it's because it's been made clear to us that no matter who's president, no matter who controls Congress, uh, no matter how many friends of the show are on the Supreme Court, we're not getting any improvements in healthcare. We're not getting any improvements in education. We're not getting more walkable cities. We're not getting any, we're not getting rent control. We're not getting anything that actually improves our quality of life. So the only thing that we have left is as a actual friend, not a friend of the show, put it, uh, is treats on demand. The one thing that we have left is the ability to go walk into a store and say, I want this thing and it will be there. And that's why you're seeing it manifested. And you have a lot of people falling for that line. And I'm like, it's Bloomberg. Do you think, uh, or business insider or whatever, do these outlets seem to you like a place that advocates for literally anything else European countries do? Because they don't. This is the only thing they're willing to do. And it's because what we're trying to do here, it's, it's almost like the opposite of selling the zizzle without the steak. 
because they're saying you're not going to get the steak and you should learn to live without the sizzle too. You, yeah. you will get you will get nothing and you will like it. That is the message that we're getting from everyone involved in making these supply chain issues a thing in the first place. They're then turning around and saying, these are all your fault, but also you should learn to live with the fact that it's your fault. Amen. We'll be uh, learning to live with the fact that it's our fault in the next segment when we, um, you know, try to come at this from another angle and uh, see what we can unpack there. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. <laughs> Unpack. I just got that. And Lou. Hey, guys. In our first segment, we talked about uh, the big and nebulous supply chain issues that are plaguing Black Friday and Christmas and could ruin the holidays and are obviously the fault of everyone that you personally do not like. And also you. Yes. Your fault, too. Not ours. Not ours. We're geniuses. Um, in this segment, we're going to talk about a interconnected and interrelated issue that um, has also been hot on the press is mine as far as um, narratives that are about the current state of our economy. And this one is inflation, which uh, to hear it told by any number of media outlets is running amok and poised to blow up in the face of people who supported policies like uh, raising the minimum wage or just giving people money during the pandemic so that they could live. What's, what's the big deal with inflation? Why is that blowing up everywhere? So, little inflation, good. Much inflation, bad. Deflation, really, really bad. There you go. You've taken a course in economics. Congratulations to everyone here who now has a degree. Th thank you for explaining that on my level. <laughs> I, I can feel my mind being toxified by what I have just learned. Yeah. Uh, so everybody's freaking out about inflation, basically because we haven't had it in my lifetime. Uh, we've always had a little bit of inflation, which economists were like, yeah, sure, that's great. The, the true answer is they have no idea why inflation has been so low for as long as it has. It's kind of contrary to the entire policy point of fiscal policy in the U.S., where the uh, Federal Reserve like makes more money and then it makes inflation go up. That really hasn't happened because even during the the financial crisis of 2008, when you know money was free uh, and they were printing money like left and right, inflation really wasn't that bad. And so, if you asked an economist two years ago what's going on with this, they'd say, "I don't know," and they'd probably have a stroke because they really don't know. But because inflation has actually gone up and it's above 5% for the first time since 1990, uh, people are freaking out. Um, and anybody who has ever taken even the most basic economics course has heard about supply and demand and how if you decrease supply, like if there's a supply chain issue, 
that will mm. force prices to go up in order to meet demand. Very basic understanding and everybody kind of gets that. The problem is that in a lot of people's minds, beyond supply and demand, they start thinking about inflation in terms of minimum wage. And they want to start talking about how if you increase minimum wage, it will cause inflation. And then that makes it bad. And that's the biggest argument people have against minimum wage increases, is that if you do that, it'll make prices go up and then you have to pay people more and it's just going to be insane. This relationship doesn't really exist in reality. Uh, there's a little bit of evidence that might say it does, but there's also some, tons of evidence that says it doesn't. And you can look at individual case studies and you can cherry pick your evidence and you can do whatever you want. But the answer at the end of the day is it either happens or it doesn't. And it, it can depend on a whole bunch of different situations. So what you're telling me is that there's this economic phenomenon that is being opined upon by media outlets and the people who get degrees in this stuff and are supposed to know about it have no idea why it's happening, have had no idea why it hasn't been happening for years now, and according to you, will have aneurysms if you try to ask them to explain it. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's that's basically my summary of it. And they'll you know pretend they're not going to have that aneurysm or that stroke, but they will. This is the first time I've ever heard that economists might have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> I don't be I can't believe that this is how we're finding this out. But no, in all seriousness, the other data that you can cherry pick is you can look at the year 2021 when minimum wage didn't really change, not really, not ultimately. The president ran on doing that, but then decided that he preferred to restore the soul of America and went back on that promise. And uh, that didn't maybe really America's sense. soul has led to inflation. <laughs> bringing it back, maybe maybe that was a bad idea. America's soul needs to tighten its belt, is what it needs to do. <laughs> right? No, it's it's just it it's it's one of these magical words that you just throw out there. One of the articles, Ryan, that you sent us by I think this is the one from Jacobin by Bronco Marchetic, uh mentions that. You know, this this inflation isn't even it, it, one of the reasons that it's such a magic spooky word, wrong season, but whatever, is because people are still alive who remember the Jimmy Carter inflation era or the Ronald Reagan inflation era. Not that, mind you, Ronald Reagan, saint, okay, magical president, nothing wrong ever happened on his watch. We know this. Can it's we say part he's of the American of the mythology. What? Can we say he's a friend of the show? Well, he's dead. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, I think he would have been had he been around. All right. Anyway, you know, nothing went wrong ever on his watch, but inflation in his first term and in Jimmy Carter's sole term was much higher than this. Not that this that makes this good or anything in relation to that. But the point is, the U.S. has seen worse. But because of that, it's become this word that you can simply use to say, well, you know, horrible times ahead. Warning, warning, danger, Will Robinson. And what you've got here is a case of everyone just kind of throwing this word in to, as we did in the last segment, to explain whatever. It, it's anything you don't like about how the year 2021 is going, be it in terms of economics or government policy or whatever, inflation. That That's that's the word that, that gets everybody to shut up and listen. And we should be clear that it's really just a specific sort of inflation because 
for the past few decades, we've seen meteoric increases in things like housing prices, the price of education, healthcare costs, and nobody's really batted an eye at those things except uh, for a few loonies on the left, you know, people who are just radical and don't know what they're talking about. But now that costs are going up on things, you know, that uh, say working class people are expected to buy like food, healthcare, education, college, not really for them. Now inflation, now it's a real problem. Now it is something that we have to address and tamp down by any means necessary, uh, preferably in the case of many economists by uh, reducing the wages of the working class. Yeah, and and like nobody's ever going to say that out loud, but that's absolutely what they're thinking. Like they can't not be thinking that, given the fact that they've all touted gig economies and all these. What was that app Fiverr or whatever, where you do basically any job for five bucks? Increments of five bucks. Increments yeah. of five bucks. My bad. Five dollars is below minimum wage, and for those of you. Who forgot what it is? It's seven twenty-five, and has been that way since two thousand and nine. There are not quite people who can drive yet. Nope, because they're twelve. But there are people like fully cognizant of the world around them who have had the same minimum wage their entire lives, and that's wrong. It really is, and in part because this theory that minimum wage has to be the primary cause of inflation. We haven't had inflation since 2009, by and large, and minimum wage has been exactly the same. Real growth in wages hasn't really increased, and that's part of the reason why everybody's on strike now is because they haven't gotten an actual pay increase in years. And with the costs of everything besides food going up, and now food as well, like this is a, this is a, not a good thing not just in terms of inflation, but the fact that if you're seeing inflation without doing anything to address wages, you're sentencing people to death, basically. Because at some point, they're going to be priced out of the ability to live. Yeah, the inflation, beyond the fact that there are several measures of it. So, you know, for example, the what is it? The consumer price index, right? Which tries to track sort of changes in price of several key goods, basically staple things that everybody should be able to. If you got a pay raise in the last few years, that was less than, I want to say before this year, it was like less than 3.5% or something like that. You effectively had your pay cut. And this year, that number is something because of supply chain issues and all of that, that number is something more like 6%. So we've seen massive increases in everything that don't match the nominal inflation rate. They just don't. And I remember in the first salary negotiations I had at work, I remember that we asked, and I don't know why we did this, an economist. Well, now I don't know why we did this because he would have no idea what he was talking about. And if we had asked him any questions, he would have died right there on the spot. He would have gone back to his home dimension like that one Superman villain. It, we asked them about inflation or or sort of why, how does this pay raise compare? I think it was 2%. And he said, well, they say inflation is 2% right now, but that's only if you don't use food or energy. Now, this man is not a screaming radical. So if even somebody, and I'm being very uh, uh, euphemistic, I'm being very understated to say that. So if somebody with his views can 
understand that, you know, people's ability to afford things can be completely out of whack with what the nominal picture of the economy is, then really most of us have no excuse, I guess is what I'm saying. In general, that's what it almost feels like at this point, that if you look at the world around you and you see what's happening and you don't understand that (laughs) that we are all being taken advantage of by a class of people that wants our labor in exchange for nothing and is angry that they have to pay us anything at all, and is using every sort of uh, cockamamie theory at their command to prevent any of us from thinking that, hey, things could be better, just as much could be better, then I don't really know what to do at this point. And it seems like there's a lot of people who are kind of stuck in that, in that gear. There's a an article in um, Yahoo from just this past Sunday, the 21st, um, with the headline, from farm to table, immigrant workers kept keep America fed. The policies help create a labor shortfall that is causing food prices to rise. That attempts to explain why this is happening to food now, as opposed to uh, just quote unquote luxury goods like education, housing, and healthcare, and, and effectively makes the argument that what we're seeing now is the result of. Um, Trump-era immigration restrictions and uh, COVID-19-era immigration restrictions that have largely been continued under Joe Biden so far that have impacted the uh, agriculture sector because, you know, many undocumented immigrants work in agriculture and, you know, pick pick our food for us. Uh, that And without that labor... The cost for the agricultural sector rises, you know, their ability to provide food supply decreases. It all means you're paying more for turkey this Thanksgiving. And when put that way, that all makes logical sense, though it goes against the prevailing narrative about why this inflation is happening. Which is funny because Biden couple things about him that I don't think we've talked about. He said himself that the reason we have inflation is because they gave us $1,400 in January. Thanks, Biden. Appreciate that. Helping the cost. That, yeah, inflation in October is absolutely caused by $1,400 in January. 100% definitely happened. Two, didn't they have a graphic going around over the summer, the White House, that said your 4th of July cookout's going to be $2 cheaper than it was last year. Thanks, Biden. Just the the people in charge are not very bright about this. And this kind of mixed message and like at one at some point prices matter and this is a, a good policy decision that we've had, but also we caused all of the bad prices to happen. Like this is such a mixed message as well, and it's definitely not helping anybody get on board with policies that they otherwise might have that would potentially help people, which we all know they're not on board with anyway. That's, that's the thing. The mixed message is what, you know, the actual people that matter are paying for. That's, that's what they threw money in, into the campaign for. It was so that you could have these people who are supposed to be the capital S a smartest adults in the room, uh, talk down to you and condescend to you and tell you, that actually it's fine that every time this administration brings anything like a, spend- a spending bill before Congress, it gets cut up worse than, you know, 
a Guillermo del Toro first draft. It's actually fine that you are increasingly unable to afford major things like housing and that your landlord has an increasing amount of power over your life. It, it is perfectly fine that cops and the military get unprecedented amounts of money to strut their stuff and to have uh, you know, weapons that are approaching the level of mass destruction. Um, it's perfectly fine that we're wasting money on investigating Havana syndrome. But you, as a person, what you need to do is go be a good worker drone and accept that you're not going to get paid enough and show up for the hours that have been cut without, you know, union representation for no benefits for whatever you, you will take whatever slop you're given and you will like it. And the thing about that is that if that starts happening to some of us, it starts happening to all of us because a lot of us are, and, and they will use that as a wedge. They will say, well, you have it better than other people. So you can't complain. And the thing about that is that it's the reverse of their fears, that if they increase certain sectors as wages, other people will simply gravitate to those sectors instead of doing all the other things that they consider useful or necessary. The reverse of that is that they say, we're going to abuse and treat these workers horribly so that everyone else has at least somebody that we can guilt them into comparing themselves to. But we are going to treat them badly as well, and increasingly so, to the level that we can get away with. And when we accept that some workers are allowed, are, are like on some level, we have decided as a society that certain workers deserve to be treated horribly. And if we have decided that, it makes it easier to treat every other worker horribly. I believe the phrase I'm looking for here is an injury to one is an injury to all. And we've let that really percolate and really fester in what we view as the, the landscape of work in American society. We've let that happen for decades. And it may be too hard to reverse it now, but we have to try. Because otherwise, the news that the two previous administrations and all of their corporate donors and all of their paid economists, who have no idea what they're talking about, all of them, that's what they're going to keep tightening it. It's all of their hands on the rope. And we're fast running out of choices here. Perhaps before the metaphors get uh, grimmer, we should move to the next segment, the last segment of the show where we might have some positivity. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe just a little. Just a little. You know, won't be quite as inflated as this segment, but, you know. Uh, uh, we'll be back. This is Punching Out, a project of the Punching Out Collective, and we want to hear about the struggles you face as a worker. You can tell us your stories by sending an email to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and we're on Twitter at punchingoutwayo. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Ports. And Lou. Hey, guys. Uh... For first 45 minutes of the show, we're talking about uh, two massive crises facing everybody right now. Um, if you would believe the media, at least the coverage of these issues, um, one being this um, supply chain problem that seems to be affecting everything from video game consoles to uh, Thanksgiving side dishes at grocery stores. And the second being inflation, which is, um, you know, 
inflating things, blowing them up, making them out of proportion and whatnot. And much more interesting, presumably. Yeah. I, what we want to get into in this last segment is a bit about at least one of the um, factors that may lead to all of the problems and what we might be able to do about that factor. Um, there's this thing called just-in-time logistics, um, sometimes called just-in-time manufacturing, perhaps, that has been the guiding principle on which all of the supply chains are based and all of the global economy really at least for the past few decades. The idea being that things aren't in a location long enough to really gather dust or gather moss because they're quickly on their way to their next destination and eventually to some end consumer, perhaps you, our listener. Listeners. Yeah. Again, thank you to both of you. And as we've seen over the last year and a half, There are problems when you organize the entire global economy upon that principle, aren't there? Just a few. Every single facet of our economy has relied for decades on the principle that everything is going to work perfectly 100% of the time, which is garbage. That doesn't happen in the real world. And when it doesn't, things break down and the people pay for it. Sometimes it's a consumer it's always the worker every single time. They're the people that have to come in and work overnights in order to make this production because there was an accident on the freeway and the cans and the aluminum to make the cans didn't arrive in time. And now all, all the rest of the production line is delayed. And I would think that again, 18 plus months into a global pandemic in which the supply chains have been utterly destroyed, We would have learned from this, but I was wrong because CEOs are morons, apparently. Shocking, I know. It it turns out that when you suffer no consequences for horrible behavior that makes problems worse, you tend to not really think about those problems as problems. You, You think of them as temporary obstacles to be overcome. And, uh, and on, on massive piles of blood and sweat. But you don't tend to think of them as, as things that, you know, should be fixed. It, it's interesting because we've said this on the show a million times, but really what the pandemic did was expose the fact that for decades, the entire global economy, and especially the United States, has been built on a zero redundancy model. There is no backup. There is formal strategic reserves of certain things like helium aside, there's not really a a whole lot of stockpiling going on. There's not a whole lot of backup. There's not a whole lot of slack on the supply chain, if you will. And so if things get like this, if systems break down globally, then again, something like a pandemic, basically, again, like we said, again, a million times, any threat that can't be shot halts the entire U.S. economy completely because this country cannot figure out how to deal with something that it cannot do violence to. Those are the only problems the U.S. knows how to solve anymore because we fired and laid off all the people who might be able to solve them. 
we we put them, you know, we put them to work for minimum wage. We made them adjuncts. We saddled them with student loan debt. We gave them rents that are skyrocketing. We won't give them health care. We won't give their children good schools for a fair, you know, a, a fair or no price, which is what would be fair because it's fake money anyway. We don't pay them well enough. And then we say, okay, we are running as thin as possible. And we confuse that with efficiency. And what ends up being the case is that all we've done is take away the ability of the system to respond to any shock, which anyone who actually has to care for anything, anyone who actually has to deal with the consequences of their mistakes will tell you is not how that works. If you are the person on the ground who is responsible for covering for somebody when they screwed up and you didn't, then you know how this works. You know that there have to be other things built in. And the fact that we don't have them is how we got in this mess in the first place, which I will say, this is the policy segment, makes it pretty easy to know how to crawl out of this mess because the solution is staring us in the face and we've known it forever. It's not new. It's things that we use to do and they need to be done again. There's a piece I came across in The Guardian. It's from last month by Kim Moody. Um, effectively, he lays out the argument that, um, you know, that we're making here that this these just-in-time logistics have rendered everything very precarious and fragile and prone to crises like the one we're seeing now. Um, this piece is written in a British context, but maybe it's telling that they're experiencing a lot of the same issues that we're seeing right now in terms of, uh, you know, shockingly empty store shelves and what have you. Um, you know, these are global interconnected problems. Um, there's a bit here that I want to quote because it sort of lays out part of the difficulty of just going back to the way things were, uh, as it were. Quote, low just-in-time inventories increase the risks of shortages when a crisis bites. Resilience, however, means bigger stockpiles, more workers, multiple suppliers, and higher costs. This creates a dilemma. Competition makes resilience itself risky for individual companies. Who wants to buy from the higher-priced laggard? Yet so long as profitability is the driving force, national efforts to turn inward or take back control simply create more disruptions, broken supply chains, and higher prices as, as businesses seek to recover losses the regime of cheap consumer goods becomes more and more difficult to sustain. So right now, it, it, there's nobody who feels like it's in their best interest to actually build up the safety net and the resilience is the term he uses to protect against problems like this happening next year, the next time some climate disaster hits, the next time some pandemic hits, and so on. And that's the more compelling argument. Like, it's not just about being able to access turkeys for Thanksgiving. It's not just about getting your squishy dumplings in time for Christmas. There are so many components of things that we need. For example, personal protection equipment, PPE, that we found out all through the pandemic, we knew we needed. We knew we needed a stockpile of them. But for decades... Since Obama, at very least, we had depleted it, our, our stockpile, and never replenished it. And we're living in an increasingly precarious world 
because we're destroying our climate and eroding our social safety nets. We must have these products and these actual physical things, not just commodities, not just our toys or, or nice treats. We have to have certain things in order to live. Water, food, shelter, like these things all have to exist. And if we can increase and, and continue to rely on the commodification of these items and the just-in-time manufacturing and not having plans for the future, we're going to die because we don't have these things. We've already been dying. And for some reason, this isn't enough of a compelling argument to people to have them change or do anything about actually fixing this problem. And it is honestly kind of an easy fix. Like, we don't need that much space in order to stockpile PPE if there's another different pandemic other than the one we're currently suffering through. Like, these, these things are solvable. We went to the freaking moon, for Christ's sakes. Like, this is, this is something that can be done. And it's totally within our, our ability to do it. There's just nobody wants to because they can't make money off of it. And because the and because the people who most need it, many of them, for some reason, have decided to be servile to the people who want to make money off of it, which that's ultimately that's neither here nor there. So one thing that got at me specifically about food policy uh, Ryan, you sent us this article from In These Times by Ben Lilliston. It's on July, uh, from July 1st, and it's titled, What Can the Biden Administration Do to Make Our Food System More Resilient, Make It More Local? But it's the subhead that matters to me here. It says, our food supply chains are vulnerable because they're highly concentrated, they're corporatized, and they're unaccountable to the public. And ultimately, that's the thing. We have been alienated completely from the idea that we should have any control over the things that we need to live, our shelter, our food, our water, our energy. We have let people tell us for 40, 50 years that, no, no, some executive from out of town knows better about that than you. Lou and I, we live uh, under the auspices of a power company owned by Spaniards. My parents uh, in Puerto Rico live under an energy company run by some dude named Wayne Stensby, who's American and technically resisted arrest a week ago and yet is not in jail right now. And what has ultimately happened with all of that is that these corporations, these companies, these people who are in charge of these companies, and I hope you understand what I really mean when I say people, have all been insulated from consequences. And that, fine. Okay, we may never get that kind of justice, you know? Okay. Fine, let's wear that off. But it does mean that the infrastructure that they have built needs to come under democratic control. And a lot of it needs to be restored because they actually destroyed it. These companies in all of these sectors have destroyed our ability to be locally responsive, to be locally resilient on purpose because it made them no money. Power grids across the United States, water utilities across the United States, food supply chains, and all sorts of distribution, right, has all been run as thinly as possible with the tiniest margin of upkeep or improvement to make money for a few people who do not deserve it. And the rest of us are suffering for that. And I'm not saying that the future looks like a world where, you know, you get 
I'm sorry to mention them one last time, your squishy dumplings, whenever you want them. But it does mean a world where hopefully you can have enough to live on with the healthcare and education and other ser- and shelter and other services that you need to live provided by a democratic system that you are a part of as something other than a consumer which does not make you part of this economy. It makes you an input. It makes you a figure on a graph, but it doesn't make you part of the system. We need to be less consumers. We need to be more citizens. And I don't mean that in the exclusionary sense of the word. I mean that in the sense that we need to be participating. We need to be taking control of the things that pertain to us. Because otherwise, it's going to be 24 dudes in some room. And I'm sorry, some of them will be girl bosses. But they'll all be determining how and when the exact moment and manner of our death. We can change that. We can do that. We can start doing that now. We know even in Rochester, we have comrades that know what to do. This is not a difficult fix. It's just that we have to do it against people who are powerful. But it's been done before. One of the narratives over the last several decades, as we've seen the all of this just-in-time economy get built right in front of our eyes. You know, if you're old enough, you remember a time when this stuff didn't exist, when the food you got was not coming from Argentina by way of Thailand. It was coming from somewhere much closer to you. The market forces are forcing a sort of race to the bottom. And if we pay our workers more, then they'll simply send the jobs elsewhere. They will have to produce things elsewhere in order to make ends meet. And one of the effects of that has been to really place how the economy works outside of any sort of democratic control. You know, if you can't vote out the market, then it can operate however it chooses to operate. It can operate in this way, in this highly fragile, precarious, very stupid carbon emitting way. And what we're told is that, well, that's the economy. That's uh, all above your pay grade. So just uh, pipe down and here's some squishy dumplings. But as, as Noah pointed out, there are alternatives to this model. We've seen them before. We can see them again. There is a different way to do things. And here's hoping that one day we will do things that different way. For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Leo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.